Jeff here from besttechie.com, and this is Techie Bytes episode 68. Today I'm speaking with Jonathan Skogmo, founder and CEO at Jukin Media. You know, the company that buys up all the viral videos. Yep, we discuss why Jonathan decided to start the company, how Jukin Media decides which videos it wants to purchase, and what he thinks of TikTok and Quibi. Enjoy. I'm here with Jonathan Skogmo, the uh, founder and uh, CEO at a company called Jukin Media. Uh, these are the guys, and, I'm, and Jonathan can tell you a lot better than I can, who, are, who, who buy the rights to viral videos before they go viral. And so before you've seen them, these guys have seen them. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. So Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad, I'm glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I want to start off the way I normally start off with most episodes, which is tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and on a day-to-day basis at Juke and Media. Yeah, so times are a little bit different because uh, we are in COVID, um, but we still are operation, uh, operationally uh, running the same. Um, Juke and Media, we believe we're a next-generation media company, except everything we do is powered by user-generated content. Um, we're really focused uh, on being a digital-first company, as in that we're going out, um, find, buying the rights to these really great videos that everyday people are creating, um, particularly in a COVID world. They're being very creative, but it's everything from inspirational to comedy to caught-on-camera-type moments, lightning-in-the-bottle moments that we find uh, very valuable that we can further monetize uh, and distribute this content. And so the infrastructure that we built is powered by these really great videos everyday people are creating and how we monetize that content um, through various channels. Gotcha. So so what does it look like for you on a day-to-day basis? Like, you know, you wake up now in a COVID world uh, and what, is your, what does your day look like? How do, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you handle that? Yeah, um, so we're global. Um, media company at the end of the day. And so we have offices and uh, we're based in LA, but offices in New York, London, New Delhi, and a few other people scattered around the world. So I'm getting uh, tons of messages throughout the evening. But first thing I do is try not to check those messages. Um, as I, I wake up pretty early, my routine is, is waking up, um, sleeping in a little bit more uh, in a COVID world uh, around 6.30, but usually getting up um, around 5.15. And uh, really just, you know, checking messages, going to meetings. My meetings are pretty uh, busy these days. Uh, trying to, I'm not trying to necessarily keep busy, but I'm on 13 to 15, I would say, uh, video conferences uh, a day. And really just trying to uh, meet with my direct reports, uh, inspire the team uh, where I can, uh, trying to uh, maintain culture. Uh, and communication and collaboration, we call it the three C's, um, as best we can in a remote working world. Uh, luckily, because we have these kind of global offices um, and the teams are always constantly working together, we really haven't missed a beat. Uh, however, I definitely do miss uh, the uh, in-person office environment. So, so, you're, so you're one of those people who, who, misses, who misses the in-person uh, environment where you can kind of just walk in uh, to someone's cubicle area or office or whatever, kind of just pick their brain, talk to them about your what you're working on. You you don't find that that same kind of um, uh, spontaneity or uh, kind of 
just you know way of doing things uh, through like Slack, let's say for example, or another um, communication tool. Yeah, I think I'm definitely uh, more of an in person. I think I I get I uh, my energy comes from other people's energy. My energy comes from the, the the office and the culture that we created. I think that involves being in person. If you would come to any of our offices, but particularly our LA office, it's kind of like a social newsroom where we have people on phones, we have monitors, uh, open floor plan, uh, people, you know, talking, right. I'm constantly jumping to people's room, um, throughout the day when I am in the office, I certainly miss that vibe. I certainly miss that energy. I think particularly when you are in such a, we, everything we do is kind of centered around the monetization of this video and involves constant communication. And so I think particularly being in a creative field as well, um, we vibe off that energy. We vibe off that collaboration in person. You really just don't really get that uh, over Zoom. You don't get that over the phone. You don't get that over flack, uh, Slack. Um, I think being in the room, there's just something really magical about coming up with ideas. I think luckily, as I mentioned, I think where we've been operationally really fine over the last you know four months and things have been going, you know, certainly having its challenges and hiccups along the way. But I think now that we're in the, you know, fourth month um, um, month right now, we're st- I'm definitely starting to see the fatigue uh, of the screen and not saying that we never go back to uh, for some folks. I think we're definitely going to change the way I think how we operate going forward, even for going back in the office. We surely are going to be a lot more lenient of people working from home or choosing a few days working from home. I don't think it's all or nothing. Um, I think at least for me personally, what I'm struggling with, that it is right now all or nothing, that I have mm-hmm. to um, um, I'm talking to you right from my office uh, <laughs> because luckily I do live close to the office, but I had issues uh, on my laptop connecting uh, over Skype. And so um, right now I'm in an empty office right now, and it's a little depressing. And as much as I do want people to come in, I, obviously I want people to be safe, uh, and safety is the number one concern. Uh, of my workforce, but I definitely do miss the in-person. I think there's something magical that just can't happen uh, 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 virtually. And so I definitely miss that. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I can't, it's, it's hard to argue about that. I feel like there, I feel like this whole situation has definitely opened uh, companies' eyes to, uh, you know, more work from home uh, options. Uh, especially, and if we ever do get back to a world where people can go into the office, which hopefully will be at some point, um, it, it like like you like you had mentioned, it's definitely going to be. I think they're you know companies are going to be a, a, uh, more understanding and more uh, lenient, and, or and also just working more with employees on you know more flexible scheduling. Uh, I would imagine, uh, considering the fact that you know if as long as as long as an employee is showing that they have the ability to get their work done and do their job and 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 do it well uh, from anywhere. Then I really don't see the problem in kind of enabling that, allowing that, and enabling it, um, making it as easy as possible for them to to do their work. Uh, at the same time, I do agree with you. There is that magic sometimes that you see when you have an office where people can just you know kind of spontaneously connect with one another and talk to one another you know without having to you know they may just be seated in the in the in the office next door or in the cu- cubicle right around the corner and it's easy to kind of just pass them and 
You know, uh, that's how well, things sometimes. That's how things happen. You know, that's how the magic happens. I think it's going to be a hybrid model going forward. I think those are mm-hmm. the companies that are really going to strive. I don't. I don't get how some companies, you know, totally, you know, abandoning their office. I mean, there's certainly some companies and, and industries that can lend itself to that, but um, I, I think it's definitely going to be a more open uh, hybrid approach. Uh, going forward, hopefully in a, in a post-COVID world, um, I can't imagine just us being fully remote. And I don't know how companies can operate that way on a fully remote basis. So, mm-hmm. so let's let's jump back in time a little bit. Let's let's talk about when you started Juke and Media. First of all, what gave you the idea way back in what was it, 20, uh, 2009? And uh, how did you get started once you, once you had the idea? Yeah. So. Um, it's a it's a really interesting story in the fact that I, I, my entire career, and I don't think that many many people can that many people can say this, if anybody has been around user generated content, I've really seen this content evolve, um, and what I mean by that is I really started in an analog system, where um, when I first moved to L.A. back in 2005, um, one of my first jobs um, was. Um, working on a clip show and think of like America's Funniest Home Videos, but it was a derivative version of that. And my job was to go to pick up VHS tapes that people used to send in because at the end of every episode, it said, send in your tape to uh, this Mm -hmm. P.O. box. And I would be the guy going to the P.O. box every day and picking up these tapes. And I'd watch these really bad tapes that people would send. (laughs) The country and they smelled really bad. And it was a really, like I said, analog process. I had a VHS player, a DVD player on my desk. And watch these tapes, and if one out of ten were, were decent, I had to call the person up, have them send, fax them some paperwork um, to clear wow. the footage. They had to send more footage in if we want to tell like, a slightly bigger story. And, you know, clear one piece of content. It would take two weeks, and I thought this is just so inefficient. And luckily, just being at the right place, I think, at the right time, and, and almost being kind of the young, hungry, uh, you know, person I am today, but also was back then, I really just was opportunistic in taking advantage of online video, which is just so new in the 1.0 right. days. YouTube was blowing up. I mean, yeah, I mean, well, they were, I guess they were, what were they, uh, when did Google acquire them? Uh, 2008, maybe? I think it was earlier than that. I think it was 2006 or 2007. Okay. But they launched in 2005. And my punchline was going to say I was really, you know, leverage online video, particularly this, this website that no one ever heard of before, but it was called YouTube. Um, and no one knew how big it was going to be. And so I was an early adopter to YouTube to really find and clear content um, where my old, my producers were all journalistic backgrounds. And I kind of learned their you know journalistic methods. But again, it was so analog and they were relying on people to send in. The model was sending in tapes um, where I said we should go after them. And so I really leveraged you know, YouTube at the time, be an early adopter and find content um, and reach out to people. And next thing I was know, I was getting it, you know, via via email their videos instead of or, or having them upload instead of having right. Them you didn't have to you didn't have to smell anything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a really so weird. so when you got started and and you were and you were reaching out to these these people these individuals who had created these these videos that you that you wanted to uh, buy was it at that point in time were you just spending your own money or how how were you doing it how did you come up with the so right price point, I'm guessing you, you had some idea based on uh, what you were working on at for that clip company. Yeah, so for the TV shows, I um, 
I had a budget and I knew what the shows were willing to pay for. And people were so excited to just be on TV there. I realized that it, it, didn't, it could have been $100 or it could have been $1,000. Uh, and we were paying, I think, 500 or something per video. So people were just so excited to be on TV, which which I thought was great. But I knew we had a budget for the show. And I ended up producing uh, the show. I, I ended up, to make a long story short, I ended up I was a restart as a researcher. And next thing you know it, because I started finding all this really great content, the, owner, the owners of the small production company for this cable network made me a producer, and I produced like five, five seasons, fifty something episodes of the show of really bringing content. And this is also right when the writer strike happened. And if you remember, you know, right now we're or we were in the golden age of television uh, before COVID. Um, but what's really what the writer strike did is propelled, you know, reality TV. Um, which they were right, which they were striking about, but it propelled reality TV, propelled clip shows when YouTube started blowing up, and every cable channel wanted their own version of clip show. And so, because I produced this one show really well, it became, you know, a small name in a small, you know, niche part of the industry in clip shows. And started, I started producing a lot of these clip shows. So I really understood the market and really, you know, had uh, domain expertise. Again, in this really kind of small world, so I produced stuff for MTV, True TV, CMT, Discovery, and just ran, just jumping from show to show. So I understood how to find this content. I understood the market for this content. And then it was late 2009 where I realized this content wasn't going away. When I first started, I was on VHS tapes, and now you could watch this content, you know, on mobile devices on, on your smartphones, which didn't exist when I first started. So I kind of saw this culmination of online video exploding, YouTube exploding, clip shows become very popular, the way we create content, proliferation of mobile devices and smartphones, the way we're sharing content. I realized nobody was kind of curating these videos. And I was working with a lot of these early YouTubers and I was putting it on TV for the first time. And I realized I could help these, these content curators uh, monetize their videos um, uh, traditionally. And so I thought, you know, there was Getty Images, there's Corbis that were, you know, had, the, had these big stock video libraries and nobody was really doing that for user generated content. And so I ended up quitting my job, um, for the discovery show and really just started buying, acquiring, acquiring the rights of these videos, um, from these, um, you know, ex like to call accidental content creators. Wow. So when you so when you first like how many how many were you uh were how many were you buying at, at first when you first got started, like did I, you like you came up with a list and you started reaching out or how how did you go about doing it? Well, to get really in the weeds, it was really a bus. I had this database of all these people that I put on TV, and I just went out to them and said, "Hey, I'd love to represent your your videos," um, realizing that you know their videos were getting more popular, um, and because I was literally jumping from show to show, I was literally using the same videos over and over. I mean, I would acquire new videos and discover new content creators, but I just kind of leveraged the context that I had and started representing these guys um, and started monetizing their content because I saw these, these guys didn't understand licensing agreements. I, I understood licensing agreements and realized that I could kind of just put all this in one place. So it was, when I started the company, today we have, you know, I mentioned all the offices and we have, you know, 200 plus people in the company. But when I started, this is as bootstrap and scrappy and the typical founder no money story where I literally just started buying one video at a time. Um, and and it was I was buying five, maybe ten videos a week and then started relicensing them back to the TV shows that I once worked on because I knew the budgets. 
um, mm-hmm. and knew what, what I could get for them. Um, where a creator thought they would be happy getting a hundred bucks. I said, no, we can get $2,000 and we're going to split it 50, 50. Um, you know, we give them a thousand dollars. Gotcha. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. That's smart. I, I, I think, you know, essentially, yeah. <laughs> I mean, cause without you, essentially they would not be able to get that a thousand dollars anyway. I think they um, would have happy with a hundred dollars. And, uh, yeah. you know, so I 10 X them. I was able to make money and made able to make healthy margins. I was, uh, it allowed me to reinvest those mo- the money I made, the cash flow, into the business. And I just started buying more videos. So it was really, like I said, scrappy. I was in my apartment. I hired someone, uh, you know, part-time to come in, help me find these videos, help me, you know, uh, uh, go through the contracts and organization. And it was really just kind of building, building the company one video at a time. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, I find that so interesting because like, so like, w- w- when you, when Okay, so <laughs> when you went from getting people's submissions via VHS tape and DVD to then having to scour the internet on your own to find these videos, what kind of approach did you take in terms of, you know, surfacing this content? Like, how, how did you, what, did, what were you looking for? How did you know what to look for? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. So, you know, today we have so much technology and happy to get into that, but it's really applying the method, what, what the technology is based on is applying the methodology that I had back then. And really, it's just about really good storytelling. How can you, uh, you know, we look at movies that are told in 90 plus minutes, tell really great stories, but they all kind of have the simple aspects of storytelling. You know, you have, you have an opener, beginning, that's telling, you get an establishing of the characters, you have a middle of, uh, of, of rising action of what happens in the video, and then you get your conclusion. And that can happen in a 90-minute movie. It can happen in a 10-second user-generated clip. Um, it has all those kind of story elements at the beginning of what makes a good video. And then how can you expand that story? And so I think that, listen, I think that that that, that was helpful in my producing days when I learned how to kind of stretch these stories and tell these and tell a 10 second, how do you tell a 10 second video and do a three and how do you turn that into a three minute story? So I definitely owe that to my, you know, producing days back then. But at the end of the day, a, a, a little piece of content, so much can be told in, in those 10 seconds. And it's just about really finding those really nuggets and really great stories. And especially stories that have multiple beats where you where you see a guy, you know, um, walking down the street and you see the banana peel and you think he's going <laughs> to on it, but then he walks around uh, the corner and then a paint bucket falls on his head. Right. You know, uh, mm-hmm. something like that. So <laughs> right. universal elements of storytelling at the end of the day. So you went from buying, let's say individual videos, one piecemeal, one at a time. How many, how many videos are, are you guys buying as of right now? Let's say on a monthly basis or a weekly yeah, basis. So we're probably, it's not probably as much as you think. So it's acquiring about 200-ish pieces of week uh, of assets, of videos, that dr- and those 200 really kind of drive the business. Could it be 20, we have about 70, under, just under 70,000 videos in our library. Um, could we add 20,000 videos a day? Absolutely. I think we're looking at some, around 50,000 videos a day, and it goes down to you know uh, 20 that we actually acquire. And so we have this kind of 24-7 global team, um, contracts in, in many different languages, that's really you leveraging um, these video platforms, YouTube not being the only game in town, leveraging their technology, their uh, public APIs, 
And what we're essentially doing is putting a giant filter uh, on the internet and videos. And the filter will kick out videos that have, you know, videos maybe are too popular or they're too long or they're movies. And we've applied these filters to, you know, go down, I think, to 50,000 and 50,000. We get eyes on it and we get human eyes. And so that applies that methodology. So I like to say it's methodology meets technology. And then we built essentially a highly customized CRM system um, that can uh, help track these assets, track the, uh, the virality of these assets, and help prioritize uh, these assets once they're in our system. We decide to go after and um, represent and get the rights to these videos. Mm-hmm. And so, so once you acquire uh, the rights to the video, you reach out. So I'm just going to recap quickly so yep. to make sure everyone's on the same page. So you reach out to or your team reaches out to uh, the individual. Uh, they agree, let's say, then to sell you the rights to the video. You pay them money. You get the rights. Now what? What's the next step? Obviously, yep. you want to uh, get as many eyeballs on that video as possible, obviously. Uh, now, what, what, what do you guys do and how do you track it? Yeah, so it's interesting. So once we get a piece of content in, and this content could be on its way to go viral, um, which will move a little, well, the process will move a little faster, um, or it's a very targeted piece of content because we realize um, this content monetizes really well if we push that content. And so, you know, we have so much historical data around viewership and monetization that's going to help us kind of make these these decisions on what content we want to get. So once we, we sign an agreement with, the video owner, um, a variety of things happen um, to, get, to get into the weeds a little bit. Um, we will claim that video and let the folks know on the internet, this is now we represent this video. Because unfortunately, um, sometimes people may infringe on that content. You may see copies all over. So we try to, because we have the exclusive rights now, we're going to kind of put our fingerprint on that video to help stop any infringement that may be ha- happening. Um, that's one piece of it. Uh, the other pieces of it, it will go up on our licensing platform. So I mentioned like the Getty Images and Corbis is we have a marketplace that we've built where we put up all of our content. Uh, this comes in, in pretty close to real time once we acquire it because then we title it, we put the metadata on it, we put a thumbnail on it. Uh, that video goes up on the licensing platform and then it gets sent and pitched to all the morning shows, news shows, talk shows around the world. So everyone from, you know, Good Morning America to Ellen to some clip shows uh, that you might see. Uh, it gets kind of sometimes it will be pushed to them as an alert. Sometimes it just goes up on the licensing platform. We then also push it through these MRSS feeds to all the uh, publications around the world, uh, AP, Reuters. Uh, Huffington Post, Yahoo, um, so they can put on the front page and maybe write an article around it or just put it in their video section. Um, that's what really what happens in real time uh, on the licensing platform, but we also work with a lot of brands and agencies, uh, particularly right now it's really hard to shoot production, uh, be in production right now and shoot content, and so a lot of brands really want content that's authentic and um, um, organic. And so if any kind of we are together campaign, we've worked with a lot of brands and agencies um, on a lot of these uh, television campaigns that you may see right now in the COVID world. So that's in right. really high demand. Um, so that's kind of the so, licensing side. So so in terms so, – so, so you're saying – so some of like the clips that may be in some of those TV ads that you're seeing is what, is what you're saying. You may actually own those and they may be – 
they may be licensing those clips that people put together and uploaded on YouTube telling their story or whatever. Um, yeah, that absolutely. May be, okay. sometimes, yep, and sometimes brands will actually, it'll be we'll, we'll reverse the model. Brands will come to us and say, you know, just this is, as an example, um, they'll come to us and say, hey, uh, we want, we know we have 50,000 location, coffee locations. Um, we know people are creating content in our stores. Um, this is on, in non-COVID world. We want people, you know, they're, they're creating videos or they're sharing images. We want to be part of that conversation. It's very real and authentic. Help us find that content so we can create social campaigns and TV commercials. And so we'll go ha go after and do that. In a COVID world, if you've seen any nurses dancing, uh, being cheered upon, um, laughing, crying, uh, a lot of nurses' content is coming in right now. Uh, they were licensing brands that want to be kind of like I mentioned. Uh, we are we are in this together campaigns. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, potentially, uh, if there are any less successful videos that you guys have acquired the rights to. Then maybe let's say didn't move the needle. Uh, what did you learn from that? And um, and I guess in addition to that, do you ever acquire the rights to something that you think would blow up but just didn't? So it's really. So again, like some of the content we are going at the viral videos, right? You, you may right. know David after Dennis, Pizza Rat, uh, Tori burns her hair. Those are like vi videos that go really viral. Those videos are nice kind of trophy clips and we may be known for them and we get some press out of them, but it's really doesn't drive the business. It's really the okay. activity of all of our content in our library drives the business. So if you look at the Getty images of the world, they have 10 million images, 10 million videos in their library, but only 20% of them really drive the business at the end of the day. You know, it's the 80-20 rule. For us, it's a little bit different. It's 80% of the videos are driving the business. Um, we know any video that we put efforts into has to monetize. And so just about eight, it's actually 80 plus percent of our videos we get our, our return on investment in. Um, which we calculate. Wow, that's so pretty good. <laughs> hey, you can't to complain to about that. Those unit economics of every video on a library. This is why we're, you know, pretty much self-funded. Funded. We have raised a little bit of capital, but it's also capital that we haven't touched. Um, you know, any other VC-backed company um, in this space, in the digital media space, they've raised a ton of money. And for us, we've always had to be kind of efficient and and pay attention to margins and unit unit economics. Definitely. So how would you say then the uh, the business has evolved over the last, let's say, decade since you started it? Clearly, uh, the types of video content I, I, I would imagine that you're acquiring has, has changed a bit. Um, just what else has changed? You know, have you changed the yeah. – have you evolved the model? Uh, when, you were, when you first started, did you originally think, all right, we're just going to do – kind of focus on this type of content? Did you ever think you'd be acquiring content? from nurses talking about COVID? <laughs> yeah, I don't could have predicted that, but I'll, I'll tell you, I think <laughs> what what has evolved over time is really, so we're like any media company, you know, it's all about, you know, their library of IP and how you exploit that IP, right? Um, whether you're Disney, any of your Disney characters um, and your Disney movies uh, for your Universal, right? It's all about the IP monetization. And we look at it as, our IP are these user-generated videos, and how do we continue to monetize and exploit that um, over time? And so 
I really went into detail about the licensing business and certainly has evolved over technology as more platforms came to the market, how we discover content. Um, there's a lot more. YouTube's not the only game in town. You have Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, uh, which has exploded in the last you know six months. Um, so the licensing business has always been there, kind of been the bread and butter, but how else can we monetize these really great assets and tell stories with that? So we let other folks tell stories, but how do we tell stories ourselves? And so we've created these content brands and content verticals to help not only help drive the business, but also create additional revenue, help drive the licensing business, but also create additional revenue opportunities um, for these assets. And so we have five consumer-facing content brands that are socially distributed. Um, what I mean by that, they're on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all the, all the platforms where we discover content. But we also program content into these five different buckets. And, and three of the buckets are pretty big consumer-facing digital brands. Um, one of them is called the Pet Collective, uh, which is obviously our, our, our pet-related vertical for millennial pet owners. Then we have People Are Awesome, which is uh, we like to call ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And then Fail Army, um, which is kind of our you know comedy humor vertical, which at one point was a, one of the largest YouTube channels in the world. Between our five verticals, we um, are on the, all the platforms that I mentioned, but we get about you know two and a half billion views a month um, from our from our own publishing and programming efforts. We have 240 million fans. Um, well, we're programming content anywhere from the individual videos to creating compilations, to creating listicles, to creating original content, to going back and interviewing the person in the videos. So we're creating kind of these consumer-facing brands that we're distributing socially. And we're also um, upstreaming that to CTV, which we're heavily invested in, and creating our own uh, TV shows and our own programming uh, anywhere that's between three minutes for Facebook Watch and some of those platforms, all the way up to television as we produce uh, some shows for network television like Fox. Gotcha. That, that's I find that super interesting, and I think I really, I really, I really think the business model that you've come up with, and uh, you know, the, the fact that you you took a very analog way of doing things and then saw how the same kind of you know business could be translated into a digital native business uh and made it work i think is great and i i, I think that's awesome um thank you i want to know how because you kind of alluded to this a little earlier how the pandemic has affected your business from a content perspective in the sense that are are you are you finding more content that you guys want to buy uh, because of the pandemic, because people are you know stuck at home with nothing to do. Um, how how is that how is that affected, and 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 has have you increased the amount of things you're purchasing, or what's what's the deal with that? I wouldn't say it's increased the 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 amount of content, um, but we are seeing content uh, uh, slightly different. The creative has changed, and people kind of as you probably seen, very creative in their homes, uh, building Rube Goldberg machines to, I mentioned TikTok, which I think have really accelerated, you know, trends and challenges um, with different hashtags. And so you're seeing dances, you're seeing, you know, different type of, uh, uh, of, of challenges of people, whether it's planking or doing really stupid stuff like the Tide Pods, which is 
I don't condone. <laughs> right. I, do, I, I don't either, uh, yeah, just for the record. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I wasn't alluding to that. But, um, yeah, so you really kind of seen the, you know, folks being really creative in the confinement of their homes. And uh, I think TikTok has really benefited from that, um, which I, I find extremely interesting. Uh, they've really accelerated consumer habits in the way we view this content, the way we engage in this content. Uh, and the way that people are creating this content. And so uh, it's probably about the same amount, although I haven't tested it, but it's really kind of interesting to see how creative people have been in their homes and brands wanting to be associated with that. Again, I think mm -hmm. we're all, we, we are all in this together. We're all going through this in our own ways, uh, in our own struggles. Um, and it's impossible to ignore. And so you can't really... Go out. A, you can't go out and create a, a commercial. Someone, you know, dancing in the fields. Um, they want to be, uh, I think, relevant and topical. And the best way right. to do that is leverage UGC during this time because that's all people are creating. That's all people are watching. And so I think the brands that have really caught on and done that and gone away from the traditional of rerunning their older ads that are kind of leaning into this conversation, I think that's where you've seen success and that's where you've seen brands can really excel to be authentic during this during this time. Agreed, agreed. So you mentioned uh, TikTok, which I'd love to touch on a little bit. So how, first of all, it seems like you guys are monitoring TikTok pretty closely. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, yeah. TikTok, Snapchat, all um, definitely all the Gen Z. So, over, over, how would how, how would you how would you describe over the past let's say six months or so? Um, I, I'd imagine you have bought videos on TikTok in the past, you know, in the past six months plus or so. Probably, it's probably if you asked me six months before that, it was probably <laughs> very few. Uh, uh -huh. But now uh -huh. we're seeing definitely an increase um, um, acquisition from from TikTok from that platform. Correct. Gotcha. So. What is, is have you found the process in terms of a, let's say acquiring the rights to a TikTok video to be the same or similar to let's say YouTube or does it require a kind of different uh, setup uh, to work with you know a TikTok creator versus someone who uploads something on YouTube? Well, the methodology is always the same. It's really about the mm -hmm. technology and the platform. Um, it, as I mentioned, you know, sometimes people infringe on these videos and because they think it's on the internet, they can just post it wherever. So sometimes we see duplicate videos everywhere. And so for us is, it's so important. It's everything we do is find the correct rights holder. We can't be, yeah, I, was, I wanted to ask you about that. Actually, how do you know that you're finding the right whole rights holder? Yeah, I mean, we're so good at it now. Uh, it's really the hardest part because anyone can find any video on the internet. It's about finding the rights holder. And it's really about kind of the due diligence that we do, about it, all the questions that we ask, you know, the agreements. We can tell pretty quickly if this if we are talking to the right person. I mean, we're looking at upload date. So if one video is on one platform, obviously the video where it was first uploaded um, uh, is going to matter the date, right? Whether mm -hmm. what video – what upload predates what upload. So it's a lot of kind of little tricks um, and diligence that we do. That we're kind of like private investigators in that way. Gotcha. Would you say YouTube is still the dominant platform for videos that you that you acquire the rights to, or is it? And uh, and and if it is, how is that share shrinking? Uh, as certainly five years ago it was, and probably certainly four years ago. I think in the last three years with the emergence of 
a lot of these platforms investing in video also we're seeing in, in uh, uptick in, in content curation of where we acquire these videos. So certainly not today. Um, I can't tell you with certainty off the top of my head uh, which platform uh, is beating the other platform, um, but uh, I think it's pretty social. I think it's pretty even um, from the last update that I got between YouTube, Facebook, Snap, Instagram, mm -hmm. and now TikTok. Um, where to, again, TikTok a year ago wasn't even wasn't even registering for us. Right. It's and it's crazy how fast some of these platforms grow like TikTok for example, like you mentioned wasn't even registering a year ago. Here it is today blowing up. Um you know with sky high usage especially among Gen Gen Z and some millennials. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to change gears a little bit. I want to talk about a company that uh is not in the same uh, space as you per necessarily, but they are a video company. Uh, they've been in the news a bit recently. That's Quibi. Uh, there's been a lot written about Quibi and, and, and kind of the disaster that has ensued from their, you know, even, uh, well, I guess since their launch, the lack of subscribers, the, the content isn't that great as, uh, as people uh, were hoping for. What do you think went wrong? No, no, everything you know based on the video, you know, being in the video space, working with video content all these years. Um, what do, what do you think is happening there? What do you think went wrong? Well, I think certainly, uh, I wouldn't say any. You know, there's always room and time to pivot, right? Um, and hopefully, they've allowed um, that room to make mistakes. As you know, if you've interviewed many. VC back companies before it's all about iter rapid iteration and pivoting. Um, yeah. And I think still think there may be time for them to do that. I think it's certainly hard to launch a media company in, in, in a non pre COVID environment. I think you saw you've in the last few years, there's a lot of influx in capital and cash uh, being thrown into these digital first companies and platforms. Um, and it's, it's really hard to launch a media business in a non-COVID world. Now that it's in a COVID world, it's particularly hard. But you have seen, uh, well, we just talked about company platforms like TikTok really explode. And I think they've really kind of captured that, that audience that Quibi was going after. And I think, you know, they wanted a mobile-first um, uh, viewing experience, Quibi, right? And now you see them kind of pivot that they're going to, be um, if I don't know if they've launched yet on OTT, but they but they plan on it to have an experience on OTT. But I think they ran ran went after a market that they really didn't fully understand, and I think that comes from the background of the founders, who are um, clearly you know entertainment moguls, clearly um, VC moguls, or clearly you know uh, CEOs of venture backed companies. Um, and I think their strategy of getting big A-list talent, um, a premium experience to a Gen Z mobile audience, um, it, it just was, doesn't click. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was part of their problems. I don't think anyone cares about the A-list movie star to be watched on their mobile phone. I certainly clear, uh, uh, care about the A-list movie star, and there's certain stars that I follow um, but I'm also not necessarily going to watch them on my mobile device. I want to see them on the big screen where Agreed. I'm used to I'm with you on that. <laughs> I 100% am with you. And I feel like at the very least, the very least, 
the, the 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 very least they could have done at Quibi was at least allow the app to work on the iPad. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, but but they didn't even do that, which was a little was more than a little frustrating, uh, especially for me trying. I want to you know because I don't I don't commute anymore. Right. <laughs> I don't. I'm not just using my phone. Uh, I, I don't, if I'm going to watch something that's high quality content, I don't want to really do it on my phone. But that's just me. I agree. I, I, I think, you know, certainly the world is going mobile. Uh, stories are getting qu uh, shorter. Attention mm -hmm. spans are. So I think they had the, absolutely the right intent, but probably the wrong execution. I do still, still think there's time for them. If they're trying to go after the Gen Z market, I think they have to choose. Do they want to go after the Gen Z market or they want to go through a, an older demographic? and switch to bigger screens. I don't think you can do both, right? And I think having laser focus uh, on who you want to target uh, is going to be crucial for them as, as they begin to pivot. I think that's sound advice, and I, I think that's definitely worth listening to if, if anyone at Quibi is, is, uh, is, is listening. I have the last question uh, before we get to the lightning round for you. And I, the question is simply, what keeps you going every day? How, you know, uh, especially in, in, in these times? Uh, I think right now, honestly, I think in, during these times, it, it, it's, it's operating the company so I don't have to you know, be one of those, and those folks, and I have many other uh, folks in this position that I'm very close with that are going through rounds of layoffs that are struggling at this time. I'm doing furloughs, and I really feel for them. And what keeps me motivated every morning, even though I'm – Fucking, I can, sorry if I'm swearing, about <laughs> Zoom, okay. um, Zoom fatigue and screen fatigue, is that I am trying to save as many jobs as I can. I think we're lucky we're in a position where the company is doing uh, well in this position. I mean, well is relative. Um, but what I'm fighting for everyone's job right now. Um, and that's what really motivates me because I really, really care about my staff, people who work for me every day. Because if I'm struggling, I know they're struggling. And I want to be there for them. And I, I, and I sincerely mean that, that, that they motivate me to get up every morning and fight for them. Awesome. Well, I, I mean, and, 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 and that's honestly, if someone in your position as, as, the, as the CEO of a company, I mean, that is, that's your responsibility. When, you know, the buck stops with you, right? So I think that that's super important that, uh, that you're doing that. And, and to be clear, you, have, you guys haven't had any layoffs or furloughs at this point, correct? We have not. No, luckily not. We have not. So, um, awesome. Proud. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Jonathan, we've made it through. Uh, I guess you could say the the, <laughs> the difficult part of this conversation, uh, if you want to call it that. But we have now made it to the lightning round. So, whenever you're ready, you let me know, and we'll get started. Absolutely. Let's do it. I thought the other part was fun. So. All right. Well, that's great to hear because you know I like to I like to keep it fun and entertaining and uh, informative. Uh, but first question for you is, and I think you'll like this one. What's your favorite Jukin media video? Do you have a favorite? Oh, man. I get that question asked all the time. I really don't. <laughs> your favorite child. I love them all. All right. We, we can go with that. I, I can go with that. Do, okay. do, you remember, just, uh, do you remember the first video you purchased? Do you remember, okay. like, the name of it or what it was about? That's the other question I get asked all the time. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember. I think what's listed in the system isn't correct, but I have to imagine some sort of uh, a crotch shot uh, of some <laughs> a nut shot of some of some kind. So, 
Funny. All right, here we go. Uh, here, the next next question is: If you could time travel, where would you go? Can I time travel any any place in time? Any place. Uh, I would like. I'm a big post World War II 1940s uh, booming era. I would love to live in that time. Nice. We'll go with that. Uh, what's one thing you would eat as a kid, but you could never eat as an adult? Um. Slushies from 7-Eleven. <laughs> I like that. For me, I think it's candy apples. I uh, Several years ago, I don't know, it must be at least at least 10 years ago at this point, uh, maybe a little less, I, uh, I, I, I bought a candy apple from a fair that I was at. And uh, my teeth hurt for like a week after that. So That's no it. more. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even have like a Coke any, a Coca-Cola anymore. Uh, which just sucks. Maybe you can have half of it, you know? Uh-huh. If someone narrated your life, who would you want to be the narrator? Um, uh, Jeff Bridges. Mm, okay. A lot of people say Morgan Freeman. That's like the probably the most common response I get, but Jeff Bridges sounds like a good one too. Yeah. Uh, last one. Here we go. Should toilet paper hang over or under? Uh, over. Agreed. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't like it under. Yeah, yeah, me either. I think it's a, it's more difficult to get it out that way, in my opinion. I can honestly besides, say I've never, never yeah. been asked that question. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I was able to ask you it first. Then, <laughs> well, Jonathan, it was been it's been great having you on this episode. I can't wait uh, to you know to chat more at some point. Uh, but if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, John Scogmo. I, th I think Jay Scogmo on LinkedIn, John Scogmo on Twitter. Uh, love to hear from you. If you have great videos, if you want to talk business, uh, lo love to hear from folks. Uh, always from other founders as well. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Jonathan, thanks again. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and I look forward to uh, keeping in touch. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Thanks for listening to Techie Bites. Stay tuned for more episodes every Tuesday with awesome interviews and conversations about technology and business. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting the podcast at anchor.fm slash besttechie and or by leaving a rating interview on iTunes. Both ways help us greatly and are much appreciated. So thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. And remember, remember, take care of your computers.